Senator, what do they come up with in there? What do you think? Alright, uh, let me see if I've got this straight. Uh, the public option is gone. Instead, we got uh, some new private plans uh, negotiated and overseen by a federal government agency. And uh, we'll open up the gates to get millions more people into two giant federal entitlement programs that are already fiscally unsustainable. I can get behind that. Gentlemen, we have a deal. Hey, I'm Jeff Horwich. This is In the Loop. And uh, seriously, the deal making over the healthcare thing in the Senate, it's so fascinating and um, disturbing, though, right? A great education, at the very least, in American politics. We're in this head shaking political situation where a handful of senators have this incredible power to shape, uh, make, or break this legislation. And you, you wind up, for example, with a deal that is nothing like anything anyone might have come up with if they just sat down in a vacuum to try to fix the problem. Uh, one of the more interesting paradoxes to me is that the senators who wind up with the greatest power are the ones who would seem to have the least ability to actually step back get educated, and make their best independent decision about the course of action here. Uh, uh, the Democrats from Arkansas, uh, Louisiana, Nebraska, Republicans in Maine, uh, and then there's super maverick Joe Lieberman, who seems so independent, uh, and maybe he is, right? He's as mavericky as you get on all kinds of things, but he's also on uh, really thin electoral ice in Connecticut, so he's got the same situation here. Now, the positive spin on this situation, of course, is that these folks are under the most direct pressure to actually obey the will of their constituents, to whatever extent uh, they can figure out what that is. Which, in a democracy, you have to admit, that is certainly not a bad thing. Though, I don't know, on this particular issue for me, I guess I'd rather politics take a more of a back seat. Well, no more on health reform today. Uh, not like that's going to go away. Uh, because really, why even fix health insurance if you can't Fix the planet. The Copenhagen uh, Climate Change League of Justice gathering is underway. Uh, Wonder Twins and Aquaman are in attendance. COP15, they call it, uh, which gets its name from the somewhat unflattering, I would think, fact that this is the 15th time a bunch of these countries have met to talk about this stuff. And I know you're getting lots of blow-by-blow blow out of Copenhagen. Can't get enough, right? Uh, but I read a little something the other day that suggested an angle that was uh, worth a little extra time here on the show, so we're going to get into it. The author of what I read was Sam Fankhauser. He is a research fellow at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change at the London School of Economics. Sam, thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure. So as far as most of us know, as far as we're reading, I guess, this meeting in, in Copenhagen is about finding a deal to slow global warming, right, to control carbon emissions or whatever. Uh, you argue that even more important, uh, maybe what they should be dealing with in Copenhagen, is a global agreement on adaptation. Uh, so tell me what you mean by adaptation. First of all, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's more important. I would say it's equally important. And what we mean by adaptation is measures to learn to live in a warmer world as opposed to measures to reduce emissions. The rich countries said that they would help pay the vulnerable countries in, in their adaptation. 
And you can see that there's uh, solidarity, you know, the rich and powerful help the weak and the poor. Or you can see it as a form of compensation. We have caused the problem and therefore we help fixing it. Doesn't that feel just kind of like uh, giving up? I mean, it's a little unseemly to start talking about that. That's what people said for a long time. They said, uh, if you talk about adaptation, you're giving up on emission reductions. Um, For me, that's not true. The fact is that uh, it's already one degree Fahrenheit warmer than it was 100 years ago. Nobody talks about stabilizing warming at anything less than about three and a half, four degrees Fahrenheit. So the very least we have to do is get used to those three and a half to four degrees. So who's got the biggest trouble in the near term when we're talking about adaptation? I mean, certainly we think about, uh, you know, the Maldives or tiny little island nations, right, that are going to get flooded. Is, is that the main concern? I would say two or three main areas that are particularly risky. The small island states that you mentioned is, is clearly one of them. You have some islands in the Pacific that, uh, you know, the highest point is a, a meter or so above sea level. But we also have deltaic regions like Bangladesh, uh, dry, arid regions, uh, much of Africa, where agriculture will become more problematic and we will have more droughts. The unfortunate thing about climate change is it probably will get wetter in areas that are already wet and it will get drier in areas that are already dry. There is something already... I understand, called the Adaptation Fund that was set up two years ago. Uh, There's some sort of global agreement behind it. What's wrong with that? What the Adaptation Fund is, it's a, a sort of a global agreement to channel a certain amount of money to the most vulnerable countries in the world. The money actually comes from raising a tax on the international carbon markets. The main thing that isn't perfect with it, it it is probably too small. We sort of expect over the next four or five years, the adaptation fund will have at its disposal maybe two, three, four hundred million US dollars. If you believe the World Bank, the cost of adaptation in 10, 20 years from now will be more like 75 billion uh, US dollars. Suppose in the case of a small island nation that's being overwhelmed by rising sea levels, we are able to figure out what the adaptation cost is and the money flows to that country, the Maldives or whatever. What would they use the money for? A lot of that money will go into improving health care, you know, worry about malaria and tropical diseases. A lot of it will go into coastal protection, protection against storms and, and, and sea level rise. Um, a fair amount of it will probably go into water systems and better sanitation and, and deeper wells and uh, things like that. But in the case of a little island country, we might be talking about it being put toward relocating an entire population. People talk about that. I think the Maldives have bought the plot of land abroad. I forgot whether it was in India or in, in Australia. So with a view of moving there, if, if it came to that at the moment, that's probably sort of a bit of negotiating, sort of said, if you don't help us, we move into your backyard. Uh, are you really optimistic that this is something that we can accomplish as a global community in time? The in time is the, the worrying bit. I think we can accomplish it. We see the big pieces falling into place. The problem is they're falling into place rather slowly. There's the willingness of countries to provide money. It's huge disagreement as to how much and, and, and who governs it. But these are things that can be refined in time. 
you know, people sort of think that Copenhagen is the end point of the whole negotiation process. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. The negotiations will go on for many years. Sam, it's been good to talk with you. Thanks for giving us a little bit of a different angle than, than we're otherwise hearing about uh, the talks in Copenhagen. It was my pleasure. Sam Fankhauser is a research fellow at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change at the London School of Economics. Here's a little bit of news uh, related to that that is just out at this very moment. The uh, European Union just announced $3 billion that they're going to give over the next three years to help poor countries deal with climate change. So that seems like a a pretty decent start. I guess they are talking about this after all. The UK and France are going to pay a a big share of that, I gather. Now, Denmark is normally known for, uh, I don't know, being a big social welfare state. Uh, Hamlet was there and prostitutes. Uh, And the last on that list is turning out to present a little bit of an issue for the city of Copenhagen. Uh, The mayor and the city council passed out cards to hotels all over town for them to give out to people attending the summit, uh, asking them not to hire a hooker while they're in town. The prostitutes, uh, not too crazy about this, as you might imagine. Uh, So we've called somebody up in Copenhagen to talk us through this sensitive situation. Hello, Susanna. Hello. Hi, Susanna. This is Jeff Horwich giving you a call from uh, Minnesota. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. So you're a, a spokesperson for the Sex Workers Interest Group uh, in Denmark. Yes. Now, I understand from doing a bit of reading that, that previous climate conferences have been a good boost in some cases for uh, sex workers' business. Is that right? No, that's uh, uh, totally wrong. It's a myth that's brought on by the anti-prostitution lobby. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it, it comes up every time there's a conference or a meeting. Then they talk about uh, how many uh, uh, customers we will have. Whenever you examine it afterwards, then you can see nothing happened. We still have the same regular customers. So it's not like the climate change folks are an especially horny group of people or anything like that. It's just another convention coming to town, right? Yes, yes. I think also it's an insult against the delegates that uh, the city council here in Denmark (laughs) thinks that that's all they think about, sex. Now, they circulated these these postcards, and exactly how many hotels are actually going to use them is, is not entirely clear, but they circulated these postcards to hotels to put out saying, be sustainable, don't buy sex. Now, that yeah, that yeah. doesn't make any sense to me. Does that make any sense to you? No, not, not at all. I mean, uh, we are we're making our own heat when we are making uh, <laughs> uh, love. If you want to nitpick, yeah, I guess so. But now you you and uh, the workers that you represent, I mean, certainly you're open to any business that might come from the summit. Uh, and so what's what's been your response to what the mayor and the city council have done here? Our response has been to uh, offer free sex for these postcards. So we turned around the meaning of the postcards from a warning against sex workers to a payment for sex. A coupon. <laughs> yeah, a coupon. Yes, yeah, sex okay. coupon. Right. I, right, a, a sex coupon. Has anybody redeemed their sex coupon yet? No. <laughs> yes. Three, three men so far have uh, written to us and asked uh, how they could use it. And we uh, written back and uh, explained, but haven't heard from them yet. Well, the city council and the mayor, why are they, uh, why are they messing with you, you think? They want a clean city. They want a prostitution-free uh, city. And they are uh, misusing or uh, abusing the climate conference to their own little um, course. Now, I thought that sex workers and, and prostitution was, was legal in Copenhagen. It is, right? It is perfectly legal, yes. So that is actually also the problem. Uh, they are discriminating us. They are trying to uh, criminalize our customers 
so that we will be out of a job, and this way <laughs> there will be no prostitutes in uh, in Copenhagen. So there's a change in policy underway in Copenhagen, uh, or at least the government would like to make one. Is that right? Not the government, but the, the left wing here in uh, in Denmark would like to change the law, so it, it would be like in uh, Sweden and forbidden to buy. So rather than any sort of big practical thing here, this is this is more sort of a what we would say is kind of a proxy battle, I guess, for the larger debate over prostitution that is happening in Denmark right now. Yes, it is, but it's not a joke. I mean, we are ready to uh, give sex away free if we have to. We are sincere about this. <laughs> Susanna, how concerned are you that uh, the political winds are shifting in Copenhagen so that uh, a year from now, two years from now, your profession may actually be illegal? I'm actually not that concerned anymore because uh, in Denmark we have a sex worker uh, organization called CU that kicks back whenever uh, someone is kicking at sex workers. One last question for you. Just curious, are you a sex worker? How did you get into this job? How does one become the spokesperson for the sex workers lobbying group in Denmark? Yes, I, yes I'm, a, I'm a sex worker. Actually, I'm on my work today and I had customers today as well. And I know that uh, a lot of women have these fantasies uh, about being a, a, a hooker, and I was one of them. And I just thought I would try it, just like a game. And then I discovered that I actually uh, liked it, hmm. and that it was nothing like I thought it would be. It was much better, and, and there was money in it, too. I couldn't live of it. Since you are on the job today, I want to thank you for taking some time out from your work to talk with us. It's been good to get a few more details on this. You're welcome. Okay. And uh, back to it, I guess. Take care. Susanna, thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye-bye. That is Susanna Muller. She's with the SIO, Sex Workers Interest Group in Denmark. BBC Transition, now to another part of the world. The other day was National Student Day in Iran. And that's a national holiday. It officially honors students who were killed in 1953 for protesting a visit by the U.S. president. So it's generally kind of a pro-government type of thing. Uh, But students and other Iranians this year turned that around and used it for some of the more daring protests so far for the Green Movement, which is still trying to overturn the fraudulent presidential election. And things may have seemed uh, relatively dormant for a while there, but from the images and reporting that came out this week, seems like that movement is very much alive, despite the requisite militia crackdown that inevitably came. So we had a special guest offer to come in to the show today and and share some musical reflections on the democracy protests in Iran. Um, Solidarity, really, with the the protesters, I guess. Uh, Now, he's going to sing. I've got my guitar here. Uh, Well, you ready? Yep. Let's do it, Jeff. It's not easy being green. Spend each day on the run from the besiege. This hasn't panned out like the others. Orange or yellow or rose. Why can't this one turn out like that? It's not easy being green. Try to blend in with the others in the mob. Plain clothes police will run you over, drag you off to Evan prison, or maybe just beat you in the street with electric batons. But green's the color of change. And green's getting madder and gutsier each day. Burn in pictures of the leader, taking the masks off of our faces, posting graphic video on Facebook. 
and YouTube. Green's such a dangerous thing to be. It can make you wonder why, why do it, why risk it? But I'm green and I can't change that now. Guess green's just what I'm meant to be. Not bad. No, not too bad. And uh, if you want to see the video of Kermit singing his song with me right here in Studio 3B, uh, we've got that on our website for you, intheloopshow.net, and on our Facebook page, loopfacebook.net. And uh, the video's doing okay for us, isn't it, Sandin? Yeah, it's doing really well. It's all over Boing Boing and the Huffington Post and the Atlantic. Yeah, we've gone viral with that one. If you haven't seen it... Uh, or catchier than swine flu. Check it out. It's not every day a Muppet swings by your podcast. Uh, so, Sandin is here. As you can tell, Sandin, welcome once again. Thank you, Jeff. More Thank Sandin, you. more of the time. That is our philosophy here uh, at In The Loop. And he's joining me today with fascinating news, or maybe no news at all, from the world of science. Yeah, yeah. Well, it could be big. We don't know. But, I mean, basically, it started like this. You know, I got to work on Monday morning, and the nerds of the world, they're like in a tizzy, you know? They're just, what does that sound like? Uh, <laughs> 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 I don't know, but just rumors are flying around the internet that mm-hmm. something big has happened, you know, in the world of physics. Nerd dizzy. And the cool part about it is the information is coming right here from uh, northern Minnesota, a town called Sudan, um, where they may have finally discovered the elusive stuff known as dark matter. Now... I guess I'm familiar with it from watching a Nova episode right. or two, but I don't really know what the deal is with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure what it Dark is either. Um, I know that it makes up like a large part of our universe, right? It's invisible to us. Uh, but after that, I kind of need some help. So I called up a guy, Rob Morris, who's a grad student at New York University. He studies this stuff. And I asked him straight out, tell me what dark matter actually is. Um, I'd love to. Uh, we don't know. <laughs> I, uh, well, we generally have two things in the universe, matter and and energy. Matter that we don't know, we tend to call dark matter. Energy that we don't know, we tend to call dark energy. We, we have a lot of evidence that it's there, and, and we have some theories about what it could be. You know, other things like dark energy is much more of a, like, we just don't know what the hell that is. Yeah, that, that sounds be. like something, uh, you know, out of like Willow or something, some sort of magic uh, Harry yeah. Potter thing I don't want to deal with. Yeah, dark energy could literally be love at this point. We have no <laughs> idea what it is. But dark matter, we have some candidates, and we have some theories. So the theory that has the most weight is that dark matter is actually this sort of particle that's uh, got no interactions with the rest of the universe, but somehow has gravity. So it kind of adds to the gravity of the universe, but other than that, it's just there. And this intergalactic mystery substance, they think they discovered it somehow in Sudan, uh, which as far as I knew was is a state park in northern Minnesota with yeah. a big old abandoned mine in it. Right? Yep. That, that's pretty much it. Uh, the uh, the group that studies there, CDMS, uh, they are basically you know dark matter purists, as Rob would call them. They do a very simple experiment underground in a mine shaft that is kind of boring. They literally take crystals of metal the size of hockey pucks uh-huh. and they cool them down to millikelvin, as cold as anything can physically be, and uh, they wait for dark matter particles to hit it and make it vibrate. That's literally what they do. That's it? They just cool down these hockey pucks and just wait for dark yeah. matter to show up? Yeah, pretty much. 
So I'm sure they have some good reason they have to go way down in a mine to do this. Uh, we won't get into that right now. But in any case, one of these pucks vibrated with some dark matter. Well, that's the rumor. Word on the street earlier this week was that Nature magazine was going to publish like a big paper on this topic. And in the meantime, the lab in Sudan, they had to keep like all the results quiet, hush, hush. And so this fueled a lot of speculation that, whoa, they may have finally found something. They're going to announce something big. And remind me again, this is no one has ever actually detected dark matter. Is this the thing? We well, sort of theorize that it's there, but we've never actually measured it, found it. Yeah, not, it not in the way that they would be able to do now. This would be sort of the kind of proof that they would need to really say... This is what it does. This is what it looks like. I mean, up until now, the theoretical models have basically proven that it should exist. But this would be kind of, you know, getting the picture of it. So if this is true, it makes this some sort of big watershed moment for physics, right? Is it going to change the uh, not just the nerd tizzy, but the world as we know it? Well, yeah, you'd think so, right? So I asked Rob about, like, how much better my life is going to be now that we've, you know, if maybe we have discovered dark matter. Good question far into the future as I can see. There are never going to be dark matter applications. And that's by dent of the definition. I mean, a dark matter particle, they're generally called WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles. And that whole weakly interacting thing means that you'll never be able to harness their energy. or You'll never be able to do anything with dark matter particles because they pretty much only interact gravitationally. You're not going to do anything with them. You're not going to create anti-gravity you're not going to, like, find God or anything like that. Really, the only reason we're doing this is because they're a third of the universe, and we'd really like to know what that is. Well, that's not very exciting. I thought at least this would translate into something I could buy from the sharper image or something. <laughs> yeah, well, it gets even worse from there, because uh, later in the week, Nature Magazine responded to all the rumors, saying that uh, they're actually not planning a big article on this topic anytime soon. There's no embargo on the information. The lab is expected to release uh, some new results soon and do some presentations, but it seems like at the moment, uh, the nerds let their enthusiasm get carried away, and um, dark matter, it, it may just be one of those uh, mythical things like the Loch Ness Monster and Sasquatch that uh, will just remain a mystery for a while to come. Well, how, well, Sandon, how delightfully you've plunked us down in front of our final segment of the show here. Thank you for that. No problem. Uh, because at this point, if you're listening to uh, the show with your family, uh, you might want to ask small children to leave the room because, speaking of physics, we are about to explode childhood metaphysics here uh, by bringing together not one, not two, but three, I'm giving you plenty of time here to let your children leave the room, three... Santa Claus is in one place. It's our Santa Claus roundtable. Uh, with me in the studio here in St. Paul, we have uh, Santa Eric Reese over from Minneapolis. Eric, thanks hey. very much for joining us. How's it going? I, I'll refer to you all by your first names because just saying Santa would get confusing. On the phone from Tinton Falls, New Jersey, we've got Santa Pat Cashin. Pat, thanks very much for taking some time for us. Hi, Jeff. And in Duluth at our studio there, talking with me is uh, Santa Rick Stevens. Howdy, howdy. So our, our Santa roundtable is assembled, and, and uh, we'll learn more about you guys, I'm sure, as we go here. Uh, but I want to ask, first of all, are you especially jolly uh, this year in particular, or, or not so much, given all that's been going on with the news and the economy and all that? Eric? I'm feeling pretty jolly. Um, it seems like people are a lot more optimistic this year than they were last year. Last year, everybody felt very gloomy. He didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, it was still a lot of uncertainty. We were waiting for the end of the last administration, and the new administration had been elected but not yet put in place, and people were not sure. There was still uncertainty. Pat, how about you? What's what's the mood that you're getting from people when, when you're out and about uh, in your Santa suit? 
I've been surprised at just how many how many people come out for events this year, how many events there are this year. With the economic news being so bad, I, I expected everybody to be downsizing this year. It seems as though people are doing more this year and making the events bigger. And Rick, what do you say? Is this a good year to be Santa? Oh, it's an awesome year to be Santa. The apathy of last year is gone. People are beginning to smile again and coming out of their holes. We were wondering what you guys have to do to mitigate maybe kids' requests during a recession. Pat? I never promise anything. So if somebody asks for something really, really big, I in turn ask them, well, what have you done? Is your room clean? Did you eat all your dinner? Did you go to bed on time? Do you fight with your brothers and sisters? How are your grades at school? All of these things get factored in. You have to remember that Santa looks at all of these things. <laughs> uh, so with all the calculations that you leave them doing, you've got an out. Yes. <laughs> yes. If, if it's not there on Christmas morning, it's not Santa's fault. <laughs> How do you deal with tight economic times, Rick? Uh, I get a lot of kids that uh, ask for like a Wii and a DS and a computer and this and that and... You know, I tell them, you know, the elves make a finite amount of uh, toys. <laughs> and what do you want, I, what do you want to say in those what situations? What do you really, right? really want to say? Uh, you shouldn't be as greedy. Other kids might want some of that too. <laughs> the thing I've been getting the most of is people wanting pets and dogs, and you know, you got to tell them. You know, the elves don't make animals. Animals make other animals. So that's mm. something you should ask your parents. How do you guys keep up with? changing technology and toy trends like what are these hamster things these i'm sure you're well briefed on the mm-hmm. hamster things right mm-hmm. and all the different zuzu video pets. games zuzu pets right and, and what is it bakugan or something bakugan digimon uh, where do you do your research oh i try and remain completely oblivious to that okay I, I like to just be a bumbling guy who really doesn't know much and if i have to i can say well the elves might know about that but if i if they ask about something like an electronics i say well you know the elves don't make electronics that's all done in china you're kind of a tough case as a santa well i I give them the straight up line you tell them electronics are made in china well they are aren't they uh fair enough okay but but pat it sounds like you do a little bit more maybe in, in terms I'm, of research i'm and fortunate in that i have a seven-year-old son when a kid mentions one of these things Generally, I've got some idea of what it is, you know? If, it's, if a child tells me he likes Thomas the Tank Engine, I generally remember, oh, Thomas the Tank Engine lives on the island of Sodor with Sir Topham Hatt and Clarabelle in the roundhouse. And, Indeed he does. You know, generally, I can, <laughs> I can tire back at least three things that I've remembered about most of these things. So we've got two different approaches here. We've got Eric, who will get the kid on his knee and explain a little bit about uh, sweatshops and uh, foreign trade policy. <laughs> oh, no. And I just try to be Pat. a little more bumbling than Pat, <laughs> a little less knowledgeable. You know, Pat, who's got the, who, Pat, who's got the seven-year-old, is keeping him briefed all the time. Rick, where do you fall? How do you keep up with technology, or do you? Looking at a lot of the toys, I've uh, played with uh, a lot of the stuff with uh, various nieces and nephews. And then anything I don't know, you can start blathering on about uh, elven research and development and Santa really being only involved in the distribution of said toys. You all have been at this for a number of years now. I wonder, what can you tell me about sort of big picture, how kids are changing? Eric? Kids have always been totally and completely amazed and overwhelmed by Santa. And a lot of kids still have that. Some of them are scared. Some of them are nervous. Some of them just sit down and they start talking. It almost at times to me seems like they're more jaded. You're getting a lot of kids that seem younger and younger just to not 
believe. Where does where the, does belief end? Where's the cutoff nowadays, generally? Um, maybe even in the seven eight range. And the it's ones... been marching downward. You, your experiences over over time. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sort sort of like like puberty. The scientists tell us. I guess it <laughs> starts early and early. Maybe coincides with lack of Santa Claus belief. It's something in the chicken. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> what do you say when a kid calls you out? When he says, uh, you're fake and I know it, which I guess I've seen, I've seen <laughs> well, in the movies. It but... happens very rarely. It happens uh-huh. very, very rarely. But when there's a kid who just, you know, you're not really Santa, I always turn and say, well, how do I know you're really a kid? Maybe you're a little person sneaking in here trying to get a free candy cane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Santa Eric, when you came over to our uh, studios here today, for the interview, you sat down in the lobby and people, I don't know if you knew, but up on our third floor level, people were gathering at the window. I heard the stories. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're um, quite a convincing sight. So do kids believe no matter what, or do you get the occasional one? who's like, I know what you're up to. You know, they do believe, and it was, I decided in 2001, I was working in the ninth floor of the World Trade Center in downtown St. Paul in a little cubicle, just like Sandin's cubicle, and uh, it was a job that was not good for me, and I decided I was going to become Santa, and I gave my notice and said, I'm going to be Santa. And at the time, I had dark hair and dark beard, and two weeks after I stopped working, I went over to the skating rink and some little Ethiopian boy came running across the rink yelling, Santa, Santa. <laughs> and I knew that I had made the right decision. You had, here's you had this, a dark beard at that point? Yeah, I had a dark beard and I was wearing this purple coat that I had with me. I was, and I had Santa not, in Ethiopia. He's he, got dark beard <laughs> and yeah, a purple coat. I didn't coat. even know that he was, you know, I thought he was Muslim or something and he was yelling, Santa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Santa Rick in, uh, in Duluth. Uh, what's in it for you to to be Santa? What do you get out of it? The the best part for me is the ones that truly, truly believe. I had one girl, little teeny tiny thing come up to me and I can see this folded piece of paper in her hand and her head's down as she's coming up. She holds the note out and I open it up and I read and of course it's a Christmas list and she hands it to me and just kind of runs back and hides behind mom's skirt. It's like, wow, you know, you wrote this note knowing you were going to be too shy to come talk to me, yet you, you were able to give it to me. She eventually came up and, you know, sat on my lap, had a picture, and it was really just kind of neat to actually bring magic into somebody's life. Santa, Pat Cashin out in, in New Jersey, what's in it for you this time of year? You get to be the type of person you'd like to be if society would accept that. <laughs> if you were allowed to walk up and talk to strangers, if you saw a kid who was sad and you, you were able to talk to them. But as a, as a man, you're just not allowed to you just walk around and talk to people. <laughs> people mm-hmm. would think you were a nut. But here, they'll come up and they'll tell you their hopes and dreams. Grandpa and Mickey Mouse and Elmo are probably the only other things in the world that get that. Well, before I let you all go, since we've got three Santas in one place, all at once, why don't we hear a collective ho-ho-ho from three Santas at once. I'm going to count you off here. Three, two, one. <laughs> yes, let's all join together and blow out the microphones and uh, lines running into our board, which is really more the experiment that we executed there. But anyway, thanks all of you for your, your good humor and the time you've given us today. It's been great to have you. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Merry yeah. Christmas. Yes. And remember, there's no infraction that can't be fixed by a plate of milk and cookies. <laughs> Seems like a nice note for us to end the show today. In the Loop's produced by Sandin Totten and me, help from Anna Wiggle. And here's something that we're asking people to do as we head toward the new year. If you're feeling creatively inspired, write us a movie trailer. 30 seconds to a minute or so, uh, a movie trailer for the year 2010. Use as many cliches as you can. Feel free to begin it with, uh, in a world, you know, that kind of a thing. 
Uh, you can make it any kind of movie that you want. And, uh, you know, you can be as political as you want. That doesn't mean we'll uh, necessarily use it. Sometimes the really acidly uh, political uh, agenda-y ones are kind of hard to use. Uh, but uh, try to be insightful and funny at the same time. And, and we've done this in the past, and they were great last time, so we thought we'd try it again for the year 2010. Write us a news-based movie trailer, if you would. Uh, and um, before I conclude here, just just a word on... Tiger Woods. Dude. I'm Jeff Horwich. This has been In the Loop. Talk to you next week.